Thanks, Pauline. Good morning, church. Good morning, those of you who are joining us online. Last week, we stirred something up a little bit. There has been a flurry of emails, all in good nature, and all sort of digging at the same wrestling match that goes on. No matter where you are living across the GTA, across the nation, it's likely that you and I have experienced the same sort of tension over these past few weeks. Some of you, when the first signs of it appeared, were a little bit unnerved, something unhinged in your in your spirit. For others, it was just delight and joy and wonder. But on both sides of the debate, there has been a little bit of sadness because we know how polarizing the topic has become. I'm talking, of course, about how soon is too soon to start decorating for Christmas. <laughs> decorating, celebrating. We used to have a hard, fast rule at our house, and I was pretty strict. Like, December 1st. Like, not before December 1st. Let's stretch out fall as long as we can before winter gets here. But I've softened on that over the recent years. And and I think I've softened as uh, as my attitude towards the whole season has shifted a little bit. And I'll admit, if it's confession time, that there is a moment, and in our neighborhood, it usually starts like, mid-October, before Halloween, when the the first houses sort of dawn the lights. There is a moment when I see that, and I just kind of light up a little bit, a bit of childishness coming out of me, whatever it is. But I I realized, too, that the the other thing going on that time of the year, and this is is hard for me and people like me, is uh, is that our days are contracting. And daylight savings time doesn't help it. It just kind of robs us. I mean, you're, you're sitting at your desk in the middle of the afternoon, and you watch the sun go down. And you think, well, that's not right, is it? Uh, and then driving home, I catch sight of a few of these outliers, these early pioneers who decided we're going to light the night a little bit. And we're going to put some lights out there. So my hard and fast, sort of not until December, that got melted away. And I just kind of get excited when I begin to see that. That's what we're hoping to do as a community for the neighborhood next Saturday night, and I hope you can join us. We, uh, we'll light the night with our fires and with our people, and we'll fill it with our sounds, and we'll fill people, people's stomachs and their memories and their experiences. But really what, what we want to do into, into days that are short and nights that are long in a world that is dark in more ways than just physical is bring just a little burst of light and joy. I want to talk to you this morning about how the Bible uses that image of light bursting into the darkness, because you can't miss it. It's a recurring theme in the Bible, and it makes sense, because it is probably one of the one of the most dominant ways in which we experience the world in terms of light and darkness. There is a very practical dimension to this when you think about light. The sun lights our world. Uh, it, it, it brings something into our days that uh, that our days would be almost inconceivable without. There are places in the world, Barstow, Alaska is one of them, where the sun sets and just because it kind of doesn't ri- rise again for months. And they notice this has a deep and profound effect on people's psyche, something unsettling about not having access to light. There's a a very major shift that happened in the life of the world a couple centuries ago. It's hard to imagine our world without it. But if you can, imagine a world 
where there was no switch on the wall that allowed you to extend daytime into nighttime. If you were going to extend your day at all, you had to do it by sacrificing time during your day to go out and scavenge for firewood or, or, or collect oil for your lamps. And even still, you might stretch it out an extra hour or so. But by and large, you went to bed when the sun went down because there was nothing else to do. And you got up when the sun went up, and we followed those kind of rhythms. That's the, that's the physical reality of light and darkness in the world. But there's a figurative reality to it as well. You've had those moments, you know, where you're, you're walking along the, the seashore and the sun is just caressing the, caressing the horizons and it's beginning to light up the nighttime sky. And, and for me, that's a moment just accompanied by a sense of wonder and contentedness, and freedom, and maybe just a little bit of joy. We know that it doesn't physically have to be light or dark in the world for us to experience the the emotion, the lightness, the freedom of rolling back the darkness. But in the same way, we also know that it doesn't have to be physically dark in the world for us to experience those those feelings of unsettledness, those emotions around... Um, confusion or, or being lost or being alone. Darkness makes us long for the light. How much of our technology revolves around bringing light into darkness? And so is it any wonder then, when God is about to do his magnum opus in the world, that the, 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 the metaphor that gets used more often than not to describe it is the metaphor of light permeating the darkness. Jesus enters the scene. The state of the world was heavy and it was hard. Things they just weren't the way that they should be. If you live with that emotion, that unsettling emotion, that this just doesn't feel like it's the way it should be. Sometimes you flip on the news and you look at the world and think that's not the way that the world should be. Sometimes you look at your family and, and you think that's not... Sometimes you look in the mirror and think that's not the way that should be, but... There it is, just the same. The state of the world when Jesus was born, people were deeply aware that things were not the way that they should be. They were in despair. They were living under the oppression of a foreign power. In fact, the people of Israel had lived under foreign occupation for most of their history. Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and now Rome. The great powers of the world all trampled over Israel. So they they lived under that weight. But there was another darkness that they'd been dealing with. It's the darkness of isolation and silence. You felt that too in your life? Just where, where the world grows silent on you? Maybe people are still speaking, but you're not hearing. Inside, something grows numb. It was like that for Israel. And here's why. For, for 400 years, they felt like they hadn't heard anything from God. And that was really something different for them because you can't flip a page in the Old Testament without getting these vivid descriptions of how God is at work in the life of his people. They were conscious of his presence. They had all of these tangible reminders of his presence in the world. They, they, they had heard him speak to them. He had written for them. The stories of him interacting with their ancestors were passed on from generation to generation. God was with them. But for four centuries now, it had felt like God had stopped speaking. I don't know whether God, in fact, had stopped speaking. 
Sometimes the world grows silent around us in spite of the fact that people are still talking because inside of us, the ground shifts a little bit. So here they were, foreign power, occupation, that was dark. God was silent, that was dark. All they had was a memory, that was dark. And into all of that darkness, you can imagine what it was like to hear these words when finally they burst on the scene. This is our text for this morning. Familiar words. This is as Christmassy as Christmas passages get. But interestingly, from the book of Isaiah, not from the Gospels. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and a name has been given to him, and this government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called, and there it is, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But before those words were spoken, At the end of chapter 8, if you were to flip back one page, you you would read about what's going on in the life of God's people back then. Again, they felt isolated, alone, God was silent, living under foreign political oppression, and they were just hanging on to anything they could hang on to. They are running out to mediums and psychics. They are reading the astrology column in the paper. They're looking for anything, a little bit of hope, a little bit of light in the darkness of their world. It's always been that way, right? In the absence of the genuine article, people fall victim to counterfeits of every kind. And here was people running after all the counterfeits. Isaiah 8 verse 22 offers this description. It says, they will look to the earth, but behold, only distress and darkness and fearful gloom is what they'll see. And they'll be thrust out into utter darkness. What a terrifying description of a group of people. You imagine that describing your family or your neighborhood or maybe your nation? Distress and darkness and gloominess and anguish. That's the space that people were living in. Maybe it's a space that you've lived in. And they're looking for for guidance and healing and most of all, hope. Into that situation, you get these great words. Isaiah 9, verse 2. You know these words. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Say these words with me. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Hmm. Isaiah is kind of acknowledging that for, for his people, they were not fined. The, the, the kind of engagement with God that they're looking for by running after a whole lot of other little things, psychics and mediums. and I think about what it's like in our own day. I think of what it's about like in my own life, how often I go running after things. Like the next political party in power, maybe they'll get it right, and the darkness will be gone, and it'll be a bright new day. Or, or the next great innovation in medicine, maybe they'll get it right. And the diseases that terrify us will be taken away. Maybe the next wonder of technology will solve the environmental disaster that we've made of the world. Or will deal with the chronic problem of of human poverty and, and distress and sorrow. Maybe the next big thing will help us. And so you're running after all of these things. We're longing for the kind of light and hope and guidance that that is necessary, I think, to prevent us from just stumbling around in the dark. 
Now, the interesting thing about this scripture, Isaiah chapter 9, is the way that it gets captured up and then kind of threaded into the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. This old, ancient, crusty, prophetic text, it gets dusted off and gets woven right into, first of all, the Gospel of Matthew. First page, page one of the New Testament. There it is. Matthew doesn't want his readers to miss what's going on. This man, Jesus, walking among them, was this very one who God had prophesied about long ago as a light to the world. And it gets woven into the stories of Jesus so that when the Gospel of John opens up and wants to describe what's going on, it's painted entirely as a story of light and darkness. You know the words, John 1, verses 4 to 5, says, describing Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. Well, that's some kind of light. Because I've got some powerful lights in my garage. You do too, right? But when the sun sets entirely, the range of those lights is limited sometimes to a matter of feet or a dozen feet. Here is a light that cannot be overcome. Continues in verse 9. This is the true light which gives light to everyone. It's coming into the world. Jesus himself. When he talks about himself, Jesus, this is off of his own lips. He says in chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. They will have the light of life. You see the metaphor as it weaves its way through the life of Jesus? I'm not sure that, that the Bible's talking about literally Jesus being plugged in like a nightlight, like he walks into a room and glows. Though it's interesting how much artwork, how many canvases, how many stained glass windows are actually depicted with Jesus kind of radiating physical light coming off of him. But, but really, those are meant to point us to something deeper that's going on, something more evocative, something, something wondrous, to use last week's word. To a world that had grown dark and cold and silent, Jesus is a burst of light. He is God's undeniable exclamation point. Whatever silence people have been feeling, it gets broken now. And regardless, uh, 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 regardless of how you take it, the readers of the Gospels were persuaded that that what Jesus was doing was bringing light to all the darkest corners of the world. Corrupt systems got called out. Corrupt systems within religion and within government. Those who had been cast into the shadows, living on the very margins of society, they get brought into the middle, into the light. Those, those who had been dealt just terrible blows in life, sickness and, 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 and social stigma, Jesus finds them, seeks them out, shines a light on them, brings them back, knits them into good society. There they are. Really what light does is gives sight in situations where it's absent. Light leads to vision. You've wandered around a dark room at night, right? It becomes like a minefield, doesn't it? Then you turn the light on, suddenly you can navigate your way through. This is light that allows us to navigate our way through. It allows us to really see. Jesus allows us 
to see what God is like. Jesus allows us to see what God sees in us, both the broken bits and the promising bits. Jesus allows us to see both. Gets to see the workmanship that goes into an individual human life. That you are God's idea. That you are created as a person of beauty and purpose and worth and significance. Gets to see that all of that gets gets twisted up. But also Jesus shines a light on a, on a pathway to restoration and to renewal. Light equals sight. And it's amazing in, in, in a world where we take light for granted how often we still live our lives blind. Figuratively speaking, light entering the darkness, it, it just makes a lot of sense for the people who live in those, in those gloomy areas of life, to the addict. To the addict who is deeply aware of the darkness within them and the darkness around them, a light comes, and they see for the first time that their life could be something different. That's a Jesus thing. The person whose schedule is so full, they feel like they have no time to spare. They're missing out on all the best moments in life, but they have this brief interaction with somebody who lives life differently, has margin built into their life. And they catch a glimpse of how life could be. That's a Jesus thing. I wonder, I mean, are are there those kind of places in your life, those places where you feel like you've, you've lost some vision, you're just not seeing well anymore? used to be excited about that job, but the excitement has all faded. Now you dread going to work. What is it that you've lost sight of? Those relationships in your life that had once been flourishing, now they're kind of languishing. They feel stagnant. What do you need to see? Maybe spending some time with the Lord used to be a source of yearning and delight for you, and, and now for whatever reason you've just lost any sense of desire to make time for that. What is the light that can get turned on, that can change that? What would Christmas look like if we had just a bit more sight? What would 2023 look like with a clear vision for what God has in front of us as people, as as individuals and families, as a church? And if that's something we're longing for, I, I think one of the ways that we get there is by finding those moments where God is turning on a little bit of light, where we're seeing things in fresh new ways. And maybe if it's just at a silly superficial level, it means me smiling in October as the days are growing short and the nights are growing long because somebody had the gall or the courage to hang some lights. (laughs) The light gives sight and sight gives, and I, and I hope this is I hope this is the product of, of any real God given vision. Hope is the product of vision. Light gives vision, vision gives hope. A way of testing out a vision. It says, is this is this something from God? Is is what I'm seeing a God thing? Is does it engender hope? God's activity brings hope. Hope And the hope I'm talking about isn't circumstantial hope. Circumstantial hope is found in the things of the world. I did well on the test. I'm hopeful for my future. My boss gave me a, a glowing evaluation. I'm hopeful for my prospects. My retirement savings plan is doing fantastic. I'm hopeful for my retirement. 
any hope rooted in circumstance is, is a hope that is subject to erosion. If your hope is based on something that can be taken from you, that's not hope. That's just wishful thinking. How many of you looked at your retirement portfolio at the end of this year and thought, oh, it's not doing so well. Maybe I'm not so hopeful for my retirement. You got a bad evaluation at work. Maybe I'm not so helpful for my career pathway. You, you bombed a test. Boy, I bombed some tests. Wow. And then it corrodes your belief in yourself. That type of hope, that is not Christian hope. Christian hope is not based on things, on something that, that we latch on to. The, the minute that we're let down and those things leave us, hope just washes away. That's not hope. Biblical hope is not based on things. It's based on a person. It's not based on something. It is based on someone. And it's based in a hope that is found in Jesus, the infant Jesus born, the crucified Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And if it's based on something else, really the ground underneath you gets a little unsteady in life, doesn't it? Tim Keller wrote this. Good words. Keller said, to have hope in God is, is not to have an uncertain anxious wish that he will affirm your plan, but to recognize that he and he alone is trustworthy and that everything else will let you down, but that his plan is infinitely wise and good. So Jesus brings the gift of sight. What we're able to see is God in him. That sight brings us hope. Hope is not just grounded in, in this scene, the, the manger scene, as beautiful as that one is. It's based in what's around it, in the cross, in the resurrection. With the resurrection, Jesus, without the resurrection, the birth of Jesus, his life is kind of just like the story of another man who did some good, memorable things with the people he came into contact. But you put the cross and the resurrection into the mix, and this really is, is something that's, well, it's that much more ultimate, isn't it? Life confronts death. Finally, a chink is found in death's armor. Life confronts death and wins. How's that for hope? How many of you need that kind of hope? Because you've spent too many long days thinking about the grave and the people that have laid there. Martine, your story it slays me. But then to talk about finding hope in the middle of it, that's the sober Christian hope that we mean when we talk about light in the darkness. Because the darkness, it's still there. But the light is not overcome by it. The incarnation, really God's great declaration that you don't need to be alone anymore is also his way of saying that darkness doesn't prevail. And maybe even that the things that have gone dark in your life can get redeemed and used by God for some good purpose. Maybe my situation, the hard part of my situation, the part I don't like to talk about, maybe God can use that in some way to bring a little bit of light into the world around me. We are not glory creators. 
but we can be glory reflectors. You know, we, we can capture a little bit of what God has in, and mirror it out around us. There is, a, there is something poignant to that idea of, of finding the shadowy places in the world and, and engaging in those places based on, on the idea that God has engaged us at the same level, has, has come into the shadowy spots of our lives, given us sight, given us hope. Now we get to reflect that and hopefully shine it around a little bit. In that sense, that, um, uh, that light, vision, hope progression actually becomes more of a circle. So light, vision, hope, and then feeding back as we reflect it into more light, more vision, more hope. We don't get to just stay silent about it. Let me, let me tell you a story. This is a, I think it's a poignant story. We do um, we do a midweek kids program. We do it in here. Um, they come. We set up tables. We feed the kids. They um, they get together. They sing. They dance. They laugh. They do crafts. They learn from God's word a little bit. And because they're kids, they're they're doing all that with joy and gusto. And because we want them in here, we're prepared to to deal with the fact that well stuff gets stuff gets broken. Yeah, so. We were in here this week, and guess what got broken? Have a close look at the Christ candle in the center of the wreath. See how it's kind of leaning sideways? See that little fracture right down the middle of it? It it, it got knocked off, and it broke in half. The Christ candle. Wow. I mean, that's a decorator's nightmare, right? Right? But isn't there something beautiful about the idea of Christ being born into the brokenness of the world? It's not all perfect. We mended it together. They melted it, and it's, it's all one. But I, I kind of like our broken Christ candle. It, it's a reminder of what Jesus was really about. Light in the darkness. Hope in the silence. A cycle that gets, gets fueled by the presence of Jesus. The darkness that we feel this time of year, and it's reinforced by our short days, maybe creates a desire for something deeper and something more. This season, I, I just want to invite you to, to hold tightly to that. Your hope is not in a something. Your hope is in a someone. Hold on to Jesus. Allow him to, to hold on to you. And maybe look for little ways to echo or feed that back into the world that needs it. I, I want to close the scripture that Martine closed with. I didn't know that we were reading each other's mail, but here it is. This is first century mail. This is written by Paul to the church in Rome. Hear these words, Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's people said,